0: The Nonprofit Social Media Summit is back and better than ever. This year, the summit is all virtual and coming directly to your screens on November 2nd and 3rd. Speakers include Amy Sample Ward, Afua Bruce, Lisa Mae Brunson, and of course, yours truly, and many more. We're covering everything from TikTok to time management, Facebook ads to influencer marketing. Get your free ticket at nonprofitsocialmediasummit.com, and I'll see you there. Hello, and welcome to Nonprofit Nation. I'm your host, Julia Campbell, and I'm gonna sit down with nonprofit industry experts, fundraisers, marketers, and everyone in between to get real and discuss what it takes to build that movement that you've been dreaming of. I created the Nonprofit Nation podcast to share practical wisdom and strategies to help you confidently find your voice, definitively grow your audience, and effectively, Build your movement. If you're a nonprofit newbie or an experienced professional who's looking to get more visibility, reach more people, and create even more impact, then you're in the right place. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Nonprofit Nation. I'm so excited to have you here. I am your host, Julia Campbell, and today we're going to be talking about one of my actual favorite topics, technology, we're going to be talking about equity, we're going to be talking about how to merge the two with community needs, and we're talking about a brand new book that I read that I think is fabulous. That's A lot of people have been talking about the tech that comes next, how change makers, philanthropists, and technologists can build an equitable world. And I have two guests with me, the co-authors of this book. Afua Bruce is a leading public interest technologist who has spent her career working at the intersection of technology, policy, and society. Her career has spanned the government, nonprofit, private, and academic sectors, and she's held senior science and technology positions at Datakind, the White House, the FBI, and IBM. Afua has a bachelor's degree in computer engineering, as well as an MBA. We are also talking to Amy Sample Ward, who believes that technology should be accessible and accountable to everyone, especially communities historically and systemically excluded from the digital world. They are the CEO of N10, a nonprofit creating a world where missions and movements are more successful through the skillful and equitable use of technology, as we're talking about today. Amy's second book, Social Change Anytime Everywhere, was a Terry McAdam Book Award finalist. So welcome, Amy. Welcome, Afua. Thanks for having
1: us. So glad to be with you today.
0: I am so thrilled. And Amy, I wanted to say that my very first nonprofit conference was a nonprofit technology conference in DC years ago. And I had just really been dipping my toes into the work that I'm doing now and didn't know anyone and didn't really know any other consultants. And I just felt so welcomed and just felt at home. I've thought, oh, I found my people. I finally found like the place I belong.
1: The way we describe the NTC is the homecoming to the family you did not know you had, and now you are in it deep. Doesn't matter where you go next. Like this will always be a place that can be your home.
0: Absolutely. And that's exactly how I felt. And I know you were a huge part in cultivating that. So I just want to say thank you. So I usually start the podcast. I would love to hear, let's start with Afua. Tell me about your background and how you came to be passionate about the work you're doing.
2: Absolutely. I started my career off as a traditional software engineer. My undergraduate is in computer engineering and all through undergrad and after Graduating from Purdue, I worked as a software engineer at IBM. I really enjoyed that work and completely had planned to and had written all sorts of career goals and career plans to stay on that track and move up into eventually executive management in the traditional tech sector. But along the way, I ended up taking a detour. I first ended up being recruited or I first was recruited by the FBI for a variety of science and technology leadership positions. And working at the FBI was really my first exposure to the fact that technology can really be used to advance the mission of impact-driven organizations. And even more so that technology and the use of technology, how we design it, how we think about how it's deployed, how we engage people in the process of making decisions about technology really does have a strong effect on communities. From there, I was hooked into the social impact sector and spent some time at the White House, spent some time at a think tank, spent some time working with nonprofits all around the U.S. and around the world as well. And so now I just spend a lot of time thinking deeply about how can we make sure technology works better for all of us? How do we make sure historically overlooked or excluded communities are part of the conversation around technology? And how do we make sure that social impact organizations, which often have missions that we've said are really important, actually have the right infrastructure and are thinking about the right tools to use in order to make sure they can do their missions well.
0: Wow. Thank you.
2: All right, Amy, you want to go?
1: Yeah. You know, I, I was just laughing to myself because Afua and I, through knowing each other for years and through writing this book, you know, often really reflect on how many values we have that are are shared, how many experiences we've had that are the same, how many lessons we've both learned. But you know, I've never said the sentence the FBI recruited me. It makes me think of X Files. I'm dating
0: myself, but I've or it makes me think of Sounds of the Lambs, but that's, yeah. that's amazing.
2: <laughs> My
1: experience was not like that. Don't okay. worry. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't a
0: movie experience. Okay.
1: So uh, with that Out of the way, just in case anybody thought I too had been recruited by the FBI. My experience is like similar but different, really, um, coming to this work today. So, my work really started in using technology but for community mobilization. So, how do we, you know, organize young people to canvass? How do we get out the vote? How do we create mutual aid support networks? How do we surface ideas from people most impacted? by an issue like public education and let their voices guide the policy proposals or the um, practice changes within schools, all of those things have been part of my my work and, and my jobs. And I think that has really influenced me through my whole kind of like the through line of my whole career has been technology as a tool for community power, you know, and that is certainly something we talk about in the book certainly something we'll probably talk about today. But I think when we, when I think about technology and what it can mean for helping us build that better world, that more equitable world, it has to be because the community has the power, the community has accountability, right? And not that as we see often, you know, right now that communities are maybe like the end of the line of power, right? Like the ones with the least say in how, those terms of service might work, or what privacy policies are in place, and hopefully we can move our relationship with technology to a place where where that gets flipped around, and communities are the ones setting those priorities. So in the in the introduction,
0: you wrote, "People sometimes think that technology is the way to address inequality. We don't think that, and that's not what we suggest in this book. So it sort of plants that flag." and draws the line in the sand, which I really like. So Amy, I guess I will send this over to question over to you. What was the impetus for this book?
1: What a great question. I think Afu and I have both had so many experiences where we're working at this intersection of people using and enjoying and building and everything else with technology and trying, you know, having a goal for a better world. But so often folks are so focused on that technology to, you know, something that we tried to really avoid in the book and don't like go do some search in the digital copy and prove us wrong. But, you know, we really tried to avoid ever referring to technology as a solution in this book because technology is not going to save us. Y'all, if it was going to, we'd be saved. <laughs> like this would be the saving. And we are not saved by technology. And so we really wanted to build this book on a foundation of people are the ones who are creating and finding and are solutions, right? And that together we are building what we want, but technology is always in its spot as a tool in service to our goals. We should not be here in service to technology. We should not be fitting our missions into the fields that some you know, commercial technology product that we're trying to use. Those products need to fit into our mission and need to fit into the needs that we have and not the other way around.
2: Afua, do you want to add to that? Amy has said it all so well. I think one of the things Amy just said that, you know, sticks out to me and I think was at the front of my mind as we were writing this book is just the technology cannot save us and it will not save us. It has not saved us. And just that awareness, as I said, I'm a computer engineer by trade. I love engineering. I love creating technology. I love that life. But the reality is that technology has to be created and it is created and should be created in service of people because we are here. We are the ones creating it. We are the ones who decide what type of world we want to live in. We are the ones who decide what we value and what we don't value. We're the ones who decide who will be included and who will be excluded. And so when we can agree on the values that we want to see in the world, we can start to agree and to imagine what it might be to have an equitable world that's really one built around systemic inclusion. When we can start to think about what it means to make sure that people have the resources and the supports they need to be able to dream big dreams and to live their best lives, then we can enter into that conversation with what are the right tools to get us there? How do we design the right tools? And in many cases, it might be well-designed technology. In some cases, it might not be a technical solution at all. And so I think just that awareness that technology can't save us just reinforces the fact that it's all of us, uh, that we all have a role and we are the ones who can save ourselves with the, the appropriately designed tools.
0: And you write in the book, since humans create technology, it can't be neutral, which is a really profound statement and absolutely true. And in my work teaching nonprofits how to use digital marketing tools and platforms specifically, I hear exactly what you're saying. There's such a focus on platforms first, tools first, sort of we have this problem, or maybe we don't even have a problem. It's like a solution looking for a problem sometimes. But it's also thinking that if we just get this, CRM or a chat bot or an automated sequence or some other tool that it's going to somehow solve all of our problems. But if we don't have that infrastructure in place, and also if we're not coming at it from the right mindset, it's not going to be effective and it could actually be damaging and, and harmful, which you do talk about.
1: If only we just had a chat box, our problems would be solved. <laughs>
0: Right. We just need a donate button and we'll be raising all this money. So let's go back to who this book is for. And Afua, I would love for you to address this. I love that the book is structured around five key groups, but who is this book written for?
2: Absolutely. The book is for everyone because one of the values that we lay out in the book is the fact that in order to have an equitable world, it really does take all of us. It takes a diverse and collective body coming up with what does it mean to have an equitable world. It takes diversity of opinions and roles and expertise to define that and to actually build it. So it really is for everyone. The organizing structure that we use in the book, as you mentioned, is around five different roles. Because although it is for everyone, you probably want to have some idea of, well, how do you engage? What types of power do you actually have access to? What types of levers can you be pulling to make change in society? And so we've identified five roles. Um, The first is social impact organizations. So these are organizations like nonprofits, like charities, like mutual aid organizations that really do have a strong mission-driven, focused, and exist in that. It can also be academic institutions or government agencies as well. The second role that we identified is that of funders and investors. And there we are looking at people who are funding this work. Money um, still, for for better or worse, does make the world go round. And so really speaking in that section to venture capitalists, to corporations, to philanthropists, to individual investors or donors in that space who are funding this work. The third category that we identified is that of the technologists. So people who are building the technical solutions. And these can be folks somewhat similar to myself in that they have fancy degrees in some type of technology and perhaps are working at a corporation, but they can also be individuals who at your nonprofit, you have You were the last one standing when they said, let's figure out what this tech system is going to look like. And you sort of figured it out as well. And so technologist is the group that we have there. The fourth group that we have is policymakers, people who are involved in the policymaking process. So this includes both elected officials, but it also includes staffers. It includes people appointed in government agencies and more. And the final and perhaps most important group that we identify as that of communities. And really recognizing, to Amy's earlier point, the fact that communities have to be driving This process, that we need to make sure that as we're thinking about an equitable world and we're building that, we are listening to communities, we are reacting to what communities want, and we're acting to what communities need. And so those are the five roles that we identify. I'll just also note that although they are five distinct roles and they each have their own chapter in the book, you can hold more than one role. Your job may require you to have different roles. If you're at a nonprofit, you could be in a social impact organization, but you also could then be sub-granting to others. And then you're also a funder and investor. So I think it's also important to note that you might identify and gravitate towards one particular role, but you might also see yourself in multiple categories and that's fine too. Exactly. For me, I sit on a couple of boards And then on
0: the school board as well. So I would say we all probably wear multiple hats and can see this work through multiple lenses, which I think is interesting. But I love that it's set up that way because it's see it's just very easily digestible. And you can kind of skip around, or you can even refer chapters (laughs) to specific people. Maybe some of our funders need to read this book as well.
2: Your heart desires, please do. Yes. So I will ask this question,
0: um, Amy, maybe you can start. So you write that this is not a how-to book, which I love because I think there's a lot of how-to books out there, but you do provide some concrete examples. And I know that my listeners, I know stakeholders really appreciate concrete examples. And I wonder if there's one example, I know that there's not one ring to rule them all, like there's not one example (laughs) to rule them all. Um, I know it took a ton of time and effort to collect all of the examples and it's like choosing between your children probably. But can you share an example of just one of these stakeholder groups implementing the principles you talk about?
1: Sure. Yeah. You know, I also want to just quickly share a reflection to what you were sharing before about, you know, folks are like, oh, if only we had X, Y, and Z technology, right? Like we'd be, we'd be good. And we took the approach in this book of naming from the very start that technology isn't neutral. And so often I hear this pushback in organizations, and this gets to the example too, that technology, if they do embrace the idea that technology is just a tool, well, tools are neutral, right? They're like, you know, a hammer is neutral, a saw is neutral. Even those things are filled with bias. The number of left-handed people who die every year because tools were made for right-handed people. My dad was a laborer for 45 years. So you want to talk construction tools, we could talk, we could change the podcast. Um, You know, I think there's this magical thinking when it comes to like, what's the metaphor we want to choose here? And we're going to leave out all the other realities and take the part of the metaphor that works. But even embracing that technology is a tool, just like other tools in our life means we have to accept it. They're all built with bias. They're all built with assumptions and presumptions that mean they're not going to work for everyone and they're not going to be right for every situation, right? Like you're not going to use a jackhammer to build the house, right? You're, you're going to maybe use a nail gun <laughs> or a hammer, right? So there's so much even within the way we talk about technology that influences what we are even then telling ourselves is possible with that. And I think that's important for us to think about how we talk about it. Again, back to the point of like technology isn't the solution, so that we're not setting ourselves up inside our organizations to think technology is the answer, or that it could never have an impact that we didn't intend for it to have. Of course, it's going to have those unintended impacts, right? We really have to be clear about that. So one, I know um, Afua maybe can share another example too, so we get a couple in here, but one that I thought would be interesting to share is this example from an organization called Leftover, Rescuing Leftover Cuisine, because they're a nonprofit. They they built a technology the way that I think so many nonprofits build technology, where they don't realize they're building technology, right? They're just getting some tools in place for them to do their work, right? They're, they had a bunch of different disparate systems that they had kind of talking to each other, mostly not talking to each other, like humans were the integration between those tools. And they realized for an organization that collects food that would otherwise be wasted from, you know, a restaurant or event or catering, and then just, you know, has kind of almost real time volunteers who can pick it up and take it to other distribution centers, whether that's a community center or food pantry, you know, depending on what the food is, and they needed better tools so that that kind of real-time activation could be more successful and more effective. And as they built, you know, a better volunteer, like, scheduling tool and a, and a better way for restaurants to say, oh, tonight we're going to have a bunch of food, you know. Because sometimes they don't know.
0: You're right. They can't plan it a week ahead of time.
1: Right. Totally. And so in the process of building tools that they just needed to have, they actually were technology creators, right? And I think there's so many nonprofits who think like, oh, we couldn't create technology. We're not technologists, right? Like like Afu was saying before, you don't have to have a degree to have built a web tool at your organization because you needed it for a campaign or something, right? And they slowly started realizing, oh, we actually are building technology here. And what these tools are doing is something that doesn't just work for us in New York for these three restaurants. This is something that could work all over. And as they embraced the we're creating technology here, we're really creating a platform, it allowed them as an organization to make more strategic decisions about the technology and about staffing, and then to scale to other states and other cities and make their impact really expand. But it all took them realizing, oh, we are creating technology we're really creating this tool intentionally versus everything's reactive. Everything is like, oh, volunteers said they need this. We'll just answer that one request, right? They had to create a whole tracking system to say volunteers suggested these ideas and restaurants have suggested these ideas. And how do we you know, really create a roadmap that's visible to all of those groups and build this with intention? And I, I'm excited for more nonprofits to read that story and others in the book and realize how much tech they're creating (laughs) in their own organizations. Afua, what what story do you want to share?
2: Thanks. I love the rescuing leftover cuisine example for so many reasons that you doubt it, Amy. Another example in the book that I really enjoy is the story of John Jay College, which is an institution in New York, and it has a diversity of students. It's large and When John Jay College started the process that we talk about in the book, they noticed that they had a lot of tools and support systems built in to make sure that people finished their freshman year and could start their sophomore year, that critical first year. But they didn't have a lot of tools to make sure that people necessarily finished graduating. And specifically, John Jay College staff noticed that they had a number of students who were completing three quarters of the credits they need to graduate, but then not graduating. And so they started to ask, well, why is that? If they've completed three quarters of the credits they need to graduate, they clearly know how to study, they know how to take tests, they know how to show up in the classroom, they know how to register for classes. What is going on here? And so they partnered with Datakind, which is a nonprofit that does data science and AI in service of humanity. So provides these data science and AI services to nonprofits and government agencies all around the world. And they started to have a conversation. What is going on here? Can you help us? John Jay College, being an academic institution, had 20 years of data on students that they'd been collecting and holding. And so the data scientists were able to take that information, run a number of models. I think they tested something like two dozen models and ultimately create a tool that could identify and predict which students were at risk of dropping out after completing the three quarters of credits needed to graduate. The tool then recommended some possible interventions and the John Jay College staff then could make the decision as to which intervention would actually be used and to actually implement that after two years of using this tool, John Jay College credits an additional 900 students with graduating. And so when you think about the impact that has on people's lives and livelihoods and families, it's pretty impressive. And I love this example for a number of reasons. One is In talking with the John Jay College staff, it's clear how they, too, went through this evolution. I think oftentimes people think, you know, if I'm not a technologist, I can't talk to the technology people. I can't tell them what my problems are. I don't know how to communicate to them. But John Jay College recognized that doing the work, they were the subject matter experts, and they could articulate what they wanted to see happen, even if they didn't know the technical terms needed. And so the data scientists there being data scientists trained for working in the social impact sector took the time to listen, to understand, to react and to really design something driven by, in this case, the community of folks at John Jay College. I think another example, another point that's really important is that even though the data science was done and data science is one of the, the flashy terms of the day this process worked ultimately because of the strong input from John Jay College, but also because John Jay College staff had the ultimate control and authority. And so really recognizing, again, the importance of making sure that technology is in service of people. It is a tool. And so really strengthening um, that partnership and really continuing to empower the John Jay College staff. And then, of course, ultimately, 900 students more graduated. I think the success is the 900 students who graduated. It's not the fact that there was a fancy data science model built. It's not this overall process. But at the end of the day, right, we're about those outcomes. We're about that creating that equitable world. And so getting to see John Jay College go through that process and really get there and have that ultimate impact that's in service of their mission, I think is pretty powerful.
0: Both of those examples are fantastic because they share the ways in which technology can help achieve the mission. I think when nonprofits or social impact organizations think about technology, even funders, even technologists, communities, they think of marketing or social media or a database or email. They're not thinking about the ways in which that it can actually help make the work and the programs more efficient and more effective and eliminate kind of duplication of work. So I think that's so important.
1: And so much of that too, so much of that like building up the capacity for technology is also all of those people, right? The the folks in that office at John Jay College who were then really comfortable and capable and confident using that tool to say okay, How can we make program decisions? How can we create student supports and interventions, right? Versus the technology project started and stopped with the implementation of the AI project, right? Like technology is all of it, is also how we use it and how we can make decisions with it, not just quote unquote, the tool part. Well, I'd love to continue with that because I want to touch on two things
0: that are huge points, takeaways from the book. One is creating a culture that embraces technology and the other is the active participation of the clients that the social impact organizations hope to serve. And the majority, I think of my listeners are social impact organizations, but what are some steps we can take to create a culture that embraces technology? Amy, do you want to start?
1: Totally. You know, there are So many different things that you can do, but a couple to try and give a few tactical things folks can look into right away. One is recognizing that it is 2022. It is a world in which it is not far-fetched to realize that everyone on your team is using technology. So if you go and you look at your job descriptions for your team and only the IT manager has technology written in their job description, well, it doesn't seem like you're living in reality, right? So every single job description should talk about the technology that that role uses, the technology that that role needs to be trained on, the technology-related decisions that that role has the purview over, the budget for technology that that team or that person manages, right? The more we can articulate that for each staff person, the more we are able to create as a whole organization opportunities for folks to advocate for the training that they want and be able to justify that in a real way to better see where our technology budgets are. Because let me tell you, they're not one person buying five things a year, right? (laughs) They are inevitably spread across your organization. Um, And the more you can understand that, the better. And along with that is We've seen at N10 how few organizations talk about technology strategically. Um, one of the highest correlated practices with being kind of a an effective technology organization, regardless of your budget size, regardless of your staff size, regardless of mission, location, anything, is an organization including technology in their strategic plan. If at the highest level of the way you talk about your vision, and where your organization is going and the, the, the strategic work you're doing, if you can, in that same document, talk about the technology investments that are necessary to get there, oh my gosh, I mean, you've really set yourself up to be able to articulate to every staff person you know, why those technology investments were good for them or what part in those projects they are going to play. You are setting yourself up to talk to funders strategically about technology investment, right? You have rooted it in the most important document your organization likely has, but so few organizations do this, I think, because again, they're not thinking that technology is connected to the mission. They're thinking of technology as something separate in the quote unquote back office, that they're trying to have to manage and minimize how much they spend on, right? Instead of saying this is central to us being able to achieve our mission. This is central to us delivering programs in a pandemic, right? Like this is central. So we should be able to talk about it that way.
0: Yes. I'm giving snaps. <laughs> That's incredible.
2: I love that. Afu, do you want do you want any to add to that? there's not much more to add. I think the underlying point, right, is that technology is central to the missions of social impact organizations today. You have to recognize that technology isn't competing with your mission. It isn't competing with your effectiveness. You need to make sure that you can think about how technology can really be used to advance your mission because it's so critical to organizations today. I think the other piece that's critical and gets to The second question that you raised is the part about being community driven and really making sure that as a social impact organization or as a technologist or as a policymaker or um, as a funder investor, we're really thinking about what does the community want? I think sometimes in the social impact space, it can be Tempting, I would say, some folks uh, find it tempting to define the needs for the communities they serve. Um, define the needs, define the problems, define the priorities for the communities as they serve. For the communities they are working in partnership, but we have to make sure that we are taking the time to really ask communities for their input, ask communities to articulate their needs, which they often know so well, and then let that drive the rest of the process. And so, to do that, I think some practical ways to do that are one, just having time built into all of your timescales and uh, timelines to make sure that you are taking the time to talk with your community. And not just at the start, which is very important, but throughout the design process, throughout the development process, throughout the deployment process. It's all incredibly important. In the book, we end uh, each chapter with a list of um, 25 questions, actually, to help you get started with these conversations. If you're saying, I don't know how to talk to community members or how might I, as a technologist, ask community members for what they want or what types of questions should I be asking of the community members as a social impact organization? Take a look at those questions, but it's incredibly important. And the rescuing leftover cuisine example that Amy walked through earlier, I think One of the reasons why that was so successful is because they were really intentional about bringing the community in to their development process, the tool that they developed and used to track requests and to track new features was accessible not just to the IT person on staff, but to multiple people within the Social Impact organization, but also to the volunteers and to community members. And so making sure that you can be transparent in what's being prioritized, what's not being prioritized, letting people add in requests and more um, as you're thinking about what does it mean to design this technology that's going to be able to extend your organization's mission is is incredibly important perfect what a great note to end on
0: <laughs> I'm sure we could talk for hours about this it's just a phenomenal book the website is the tech that comes but where else can people find you Amy let's start with you
1: yeah Twitter is easy at Amy RS Ward that's super easy and truly if you want to email anytime you can contact us through the tech website or Amy at n10.org truly happy to share resources or get you connected to whatever can help you be successful.
2: All right, Afua, where can people find you?
1: Absolutely. Twitter
2: is the best space for me as well. I'm at Afua underscore Bruce. On Twitter, as Amy said, please reach out to us through our website. If you'd like to contact me directly via email, it's hello at afuabruce.com. Okay. Using tech to
0: continue the conversation. Sounds about right. <laughs> Thank you both so much for being here and everyone check out the tech that comes next and let us know what you think on Twitter. Thanks so much, Amy and Ifua. Thank you.
1: Thanks, Julia.
0: Well, hey there. I wanted to say thank you for tuning into my show and for listening all the way to the end. If you really enjoyed today's conversation, make sure to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app and you'll get new episodes downloaded as soon as they come out. I would love if you left me a rating or a review because this tells other people that my podcast is worth listening to. And then me and my guests can reach even more earbuds and create even more impact. So that's pretty much it. I'll be back soon with a brand new episode. But until then, you can find me on Instagram at JuliaCampbell77. Keep changing the world, you nonprofit unicorn.